Welcome to the Nicholas Itali Show, where we chat with entrepreneurs, experts, and entertainers to help you live a more fulfilling life and take your business to the next level. Today, we're chatting with the one and only Vinny Potestivo. Vinny Potestivo is an Emmy award-winning media advisor who helps clients build and maintain the media platform they need to reach and sustain their goals. He's the host of I Have a Podcast and the editor-in-chief of I Have a Podcast, a Google news source that connects independent creators with opportunities to grow their careers and get discovered. Let's keep talking about Vinny for a second. Vinny was a television network executive at MTV Networks. He discovered talent and developed new ways to support their goals. Early hits include Punked, The Osbournes, Wild and Out, TRL, 8th and Ocean, Laguna Beach, and The Challenge. Talent brands he helped launch include Mandy Moore, Beyonce Carter, Nick Cannon, Molly Sims, Lindsay Lohan, Ashley and Jessica Simpson Kelly, and Jack Osborne, and so many more. I'm serious. There is an insane amount of celebrities on this list. He's worked closely with corporate brands like Macy's, Samsung, Nikon, MLB, Ciroc, Lady Foot Locker, AARP, and Allstate. I know I'm tooting his horn, but with a resume like that, how could I resist? Before we dive into this episode, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and share this episode with a friend that you know would benefit from the episode. Believe it or not, your shares and reviews help me reach out to guests, which in turn will bring more value to the show on how to live a fulfilling life. Riddle of the week, how do moths swim? Stay tuned to the end of the episode to find out. That was the intro. Now here is the episode. Hello and welcome. This is the Nicholas Itali Show. I'm your host, Nicholas Itali. Today we have a very special guest, Vinny Potestivo. Vinny, welcome to the show. Yo, thanks, Nicholas Itali. How are you, buddy? I'm doing very well. I'm very excited to have you here. Hey, I would rather be no place else rather than where I am right now. Wow. And we've had this a long time coming, so I'm excited. I'm excited to finally create what we're about to do here. Let's see if we can live up to the hype. Here's what I got for you. Here's where (laughs) I want to start. I've heard you state that a great place to tap into inspiration is our childhoods. So here's what I know about your upbringing. You're from Staten Island, you and Pete Davidson right there, the boys. You've said that you've developed a lifelong struggle of showing up for yourself. And early on, you realize that adults don't have all the answers. You've seen both of your parents battle with addiction and a large portion of your upbringing was growing up in a single mother household with your three siblings. We know what happens. You end up hyper successful, insanely creative career. Oh, appreciate that. <laughs> what parts of your childhood pushed you into the creative career path that you had? And what parts of your childhood have been used to your advantage in your career? Oh, all every single part. There's no part that's been left untapped, un, unexplored, underdeveloped. Um, I think every part of it. I think that uh, as you and, and and awesome research, by the way, uh, and it's awesome to get to just sort of jump into some of the emotions that I had tied to those life things. You know, uh, I had I had adults in my life that weren't giving me answers but signals, and mm. I had to learn what those signals were. Eventually, that I think led to me having some sort of like like empath ability and ability to be more empathetic in in conversations and in the discovery process so i think that's two things one is that that allows me to understand the energy in the room but it also makes me it also helps me understand your clarity in 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 what you what you're saying what you claim to be true it's a weird way to say this but like in reality casting i would hear people would talk about you know an ex and they would be hysterical laughing about the horrible Uh, things that they went through and i'm like wait are you over it or yeah. Like, do you need help with this? Or were you just like, is this just your favorite story to mm-hmm. tell? Because I've been in that, I've been in that spot before. I've, mm-hmm. I got caught when I was 19 
literally in the worst version of my own story. Mm. And it was an aha moment that I'll never forget where, where I realized the power in our story. But, but, but leading up to that, it was being an empath. It was, ple- it, you know, I'm the oldest of, of, as you pointed out, I have three siblings. So anything they wanted to happen, I, if I was in a position to make the, help them make that happen, then that was a success for me. If I can minimize my asks so that I minimize my um, ability to lose or be um, uh, underwhelmed or mm-hmm. to be dissatisfied or you know disappointed, and if I learn to not want something but make things happen for other people, being a people pleaser, mm. uh, it's a it's a coping mechanism. Yeah. Um, one of the benefit, one of the good coping mechanisms I picked up though was my ability to sleep. Oh, <laughs> nice. When it got loud in my house, you know, when, when dad came home, when things happened at night, you know, if I go to sleep and wake up in the morning, everything tended to be better in the morning. So, yeah. so when I get really stressed out and anxiety, I can go to sleep and I can, I can like release and then come back in. And that's one of the ways that um, I actually have to control my anxiety. I haven't quite figured out how to turn that into a superpower other mm-hmm. than just like mm-hmm. I, I have the ability to sleep when it's time to go to sleep. Um, yeah. Uh, because it, being creative, you have weird hours, a lot of other people's hours. But being a people pleaser helped me at MTV make mm. dreams come true for everyone that I worked with. Yeah. Um, because I had that relationship with my brothers and sister, I also had a very similar relationship to all the people I worked with. It's a weird thing to say, not even as like friends. We treated each other as like Mandy Moore felt more to me like my little sister than a celebrity or even a friend, to be honest. I told her everything that I possibly could because there was like, you know, when you're siblings, there's like no secrets. We have to know everything. And and back then, there's a lot of gating, you know, a lot of gating information. And and, and I hate bringing up Britney uh, Spears and Mandy in the same sentence. Looking back 20 years ago, I think... Mandy had a, a team around her that gave her access to reality, to like real reality. And I'm not, Mandy didn't have the level of media pressure that Britney had. And, you know, the, it weren't, they weren't the same stakes, I understand. Um, yeah. But look at the results, right? So um, that being said, it, it was learning to collaborate with my family, learning to collaborate with artists. And I treated them like family. So there was no specific show that ever felt transactional mm-hmm. because our relationship superseded Mm. show by show and i think that's a a, an approach now that i think about it that's more of a familial approach to collaborating and maybe that's why i loved collaborating on shows that were about families because i worked Mm. on housewives of new jersey which if you look at all the housewife franchises is literally about an extended family uh osborne's uh, newlyweds like I, i do pretty well with uh family driven narratives and I have to think about that a bit. So I appreciate the framing of this question and <laughs> where it's led me down. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think just from the research that I've seen in like the episodes that I've listened to you on, the way you talk with people, the way you connect with people, exactly what you, you're saying, the relationship has superseded the career intention. It seems like you've always put the people first, the person first. Yeah. And... I think that's the way to do it because at the end of the day, you lose your job, you don't lose, you know, hopefully you wouldn't lose your friends when you lose your job or something like that. That's so true. It's so, and, and by the way, uh, and then, or in the opposite is you lose your job and then like you push your friends away because you think you're not worthy of their friendship because mm. you're no longer I'm totally describing my exit out of MTV <laughs> in 07. 
And 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 and, and I'm and I even talk about this in the in so many of the podcasts of people that I worked with at MTV when they left too. They're like, ooh, I didn't. I thought I was like, you know, I, yeah. I thought my time was done, so I didn't know where I fell. And um, it's those relationships that matter the most. I would get so bummed out when they're it's show business, not like yeah. show friendship. Uh. And I'm like, no, it literally is about like us. Yeah. <laughs> and I I think that that's what attracts me to podcasting over television right now why i'm so attracted to developing in this independent media space as opposed to the ad-driven space of television by the way i'm happy to get podcast or broadcast i love that game i'm good at yeah. that so i'm developing podcasts with the intentionality of getting them bought by these mm-hmm. you know by these networks that i've been working with because um, i know what it takes to get bought and i know what, what they're looking for in terms of ownership of conversation but but i'm not excited about pitching ideas to networks and then on, on a platform ultimately that's like sort of a downward spiral where where the goal and the strategy for most networks is retention mm-hmm. and not growth. It's mostly about how do we keep people watching mm. our platform. It's not about how do we get new eyeballs. And that defensive strategy, albeit a successful one for television, yeah. I don't believe to be something that's going to ignite the level of conversations or change that I want. That being said, I think that like uh, Lifetime with R. Kelly and, and like, there's some amazing series that have come out of television. But a is not um, unlike CBS, NBC, uh, ABC, Viacom. Mm-hmm. A&E and History Channel and Lifetime, those are an independent, those are owned by an independent family. Oh, those wow. are not, uh, those are not publicly traded, you know, networks. So they have different rules that they get to abide by. Yeah. And that's the benefit of of being to be honest a privately owned and funded company not not funded but privately owned company um and and 25 years in tv i figured if i could have another 25 years in podcasts and i can if i can help create yet again another unpreferred form of Mm -hmm. media because like reality i always got the poo-poo on cable tv and then it was the poo-poo on reality tv and (laughs) now it's the four million podcasts it's oversaturated four million that's nothing that is I don't nothing. know about you, yeah. but it doesn't that like, come on, four million and that's like a big, so I'm excited about, about what we have the power to do and um, I'm seeing it, I'm seeing it happen in my community and my networking and my skills and my vocabulary um, more so than if I was focused on selling content, selling content to make money Yeah. in the media space, that's all. I think I can make more impact this way. Yeah, definitely a more relational approach, being able to meet people one-on-one. And I think you bring up a really cool point that I've never considered when the mainstream is trying to retain, but whenever I talk to creators, it's all growth mindset. Like, how do Mm -hmm. I continue to grow and grow, which seems polar opposite. I wanna touch on, you mentioned your exit from MTV. We'll get to it. I wanna talk about your entrance into MTV. And I kinda wanna start Back in college, we're talking Wagner's College. You're at the computer center. Mm-hmm. You're wiring, digitizing some tapes. You got an engineer mind yeah. side hustle going on. But then you did something that I think is fascinating: is you posted an ad on Backstage in search of actors, but you weren't really a casting director yet. How did this come to be, and how was this kind of like a catalyst into your role at NTV? Yeah, it's brilliant. Uh, it was literally what started my company, by the way, the single move. Someone had told me the power of, of changing my story was was being present and being in the future, mm. being present of who you are now and, being, and making decisions in the future. And 
And I went back and, and ultimately I think I walked away from that conversation and I was like, wait, did they just tell me like all I have to do to be a casting director is just say I'm a casting director? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like that sounds like a scam mm-hmm. to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of mad. And I remember being at school that night I was bummed. And I, I like out of like, uh, and there was no reason why I should be held accountable to being a casting director at this point because I don't think I even said it out loud to anybody. Right. But I thought for some reason... I should take out an ad and say that I'm a casting director. I'm looking to build my files. If you're someone who's open for future work, send me your headshot and resume. One campus road, student box, five cents. Like I didn't hide that I was a student. Yeah. I didn't even think about having Vinny Potestivo casting or Vinny Potestivo Entertainment as like a company name. I just literally was thinking, what would I need to be a casting director? And for some reason, clients weren't the, fir- the first thing that popped into my yeah. head. People were. Yeah. So I thought, cool, I'll put it out. Maybe I'll get a couple of dozen headshots. No big deal. I ended up getting between five and 700 oh headshots Oh, my gosh. At Whoa. It was a cool moment. That's, it was a cool that's moment. That's wild. It was like a Miracle on 34th Street Santa Claus <laughs> moment when they you know, dropped the USPS. And, and this is when I really physically can start seeing my career beginning. Yeah. Literally see that with every action, there's a reaction. This was a much bigger reaction than I thought. And as you pointed out, uh, there's this like computer club kid in me. So I turned to databases. I went to Microsoft Excel. I knew how to organize information and I knew how to, to move that information. So, so Microsoft Excel has something called macros and macros basically take data and do things with them. Now we have IFTTT and triggers and some automation tools. So back in the 90s, there were macros. And if I had a, a database of talent, I could create macros that would automatically email or create one sheets for people based on opportunities that I saw. Wow. So I was almost like more of an agent or a manager than a casting director. I would, based on what someone said they were looking for in their headshot and what, what my gut said about what they said about themselves, I would look at opportunities, and if I thought it was right for somebody, I would just email them and say, hey, here's a photocopy of, here, I, I saw this and I thought of you. Thanks for sending me your information. Mm-hmm. I just started sending out info, mm-hmm. and it turned into a newsletter. It turned into an active database. It got into the hands of someone at uh, Fox News. Nice. Uh, they were working, a producer for Hannity and Combs. Mm. Uh, Fox News was brand new in the 90s, so that was exciting to me. A new platform was exciting. I saw MTV get launched in the 80s. I didn't have cable. I wasn't... So intent. I was more into video games than, than watching MTV. I was more into playing video games, like um, <laughs> just because I didn't have access to cable. And uh, I thought that was interesting. Fox News, Hannity and Combs travel the country, organize the audience list, thousands of people through my database, pick people to ask questions, track who asked questions, track who, mm-hmm. who signed the release. I mean, you're. All of these things are like toggles and checks and data points. I, I couldn't be happier. Yeah. I was like, wait, I get to organize this stuff? This <laughs> yeah. is, and I'm traveling. It's a TV show. I got my Fox News lanyard. And that turned into an opportunity with MTV News when they were looking to cast Choose or Lose, mm. the Choose or Lose team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's where we found, Gideon, we found Gideon Diego uh, on the campus of Columbia. And um, who Gideon Diego is the creator was was an amazing voice and face of MTV News for a generation, but was a creator of Newsroom with Aaron Sorkin. And also, if you're watching Mosquito Coast right now on Apple TV, he's the creating executive producer. Like, I got to work with people who became creators of shows that I like obsess over. Damien Fahey, one of the VJs, the last VJs that I got to cast. 
who to host Total Request Live back in the early 2000s. He he's an, a co-EP on Family Guy. Mm. It's like the coolest. They have the coolest yeah. jobs. Those those VJs. Um, Vanessa Lachey is killing it on CBS. But but it was this opportunity to to it, it, it was the opportunity that I saw where I saw opportunities that I didn't know if people were closing the dots. And I literally just interjected myself. But I did it in in a way that I was able to demonstrate a technical skill mm-hmm. through that database. And that database is, I think, really what helped. That database is what helped me stay at MTV for so long. I have a couple other technical skills. Like I, 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 when I was in high school, I, I was a, an intern at the Staten Island Basic Access Channel. I learned uh, in, in a control room, I learned how to wire two VCRs together. I learned how to digitize tapes. I learned how to move media. Yeah. So in the late 90s, that ended up being really, you know, High tech when, stuff when right the, there. The, the floppy disk, the hard disk, the no disk, <laughs> you know, like we went through it. And, and I learned how to survive, you know, the HD, Blu-ray, mm. back to HD, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. up to 4K. So I've been, I've been un, you know, if you're not mindful of the media that you're creating, the longevity, the life shelf of that media matters. Yeah. Right. If you're not creating right now in 4K, then I don't believe you're creating for content in perpetuity, knowing that there's going to be a 4K mandate soon in our future yeah. for the level of quality and experience people want. And our, our, I think my my Apple Mac has 1080. I think I have a camera that is uh, no, my my phone. I had a, a 2020. A Mac, so I have a 720 camera and a 1080 extension that I was able to get for 30 bucks nice. off of, of Amazon. But that matters. Yeah. And I realized I was the one making the decision to put me in not HD mm. and and clarity. Clarity sends a clear signal. I mean, you want to cut through the clutter, have yeah. a really clean, tight, you know, video, especially in this day and age of of Zoom calls and. You know, like what we're lucky we're using a premium platform now to mm-hmm. record. It really helps us stand out. Absolutely. And I think there is something to be said about the life shelf of content and thinking ahead in that way because time moves quick. And if you're quick. if you're only looking at your feet the whole time, you might miss the boat on what could have been for 10, 5, 15 years out, you know, where your content could have lived. And here's, here's what happens, for example. So... Um, if you're not recording in 4K, it may be more difficult to get segments or even shows on Verizon or Cox or Comcast or uh, a- some of the AVODs, some of the uh, uh, advertising video on demand, you, you know, the 2Bs and some of those other platforms that we're seeing other podcasts on. Next year, I, I next year I'm recommending all of my clients to be shooting in 4K because I had this issue happen when eight when SD went to HD mm. and Verizon specifically Verizon and Sony stopped ingesting they stopped taking SD footage because they didn't want to take it off wow. and they stopped taking 720 and they st- they're still taking obviously 1080 but I can see in the future in the very near future where companies platforms say we're only bringing in 4K footage or or 50 percent you know you remember on TV where 50 percent of, of the sh- TV show used to be in HD, and then we kind of had <laughs> an HD and an SD feed for a little bit mm-hmm, on TV. Mm-hmm. And now that's gone. Now that SD feed is gone, standard definition is gone. It's strictly high definition. I think that, that that's happening in 4K, too. And I think that it's going to be more difficult to actually place content knowing that it's going to expire. It has mm. a limited shelf life because of the mandates that the FCC and other 
regulatory yeah. institutions that are going to have a say in our media very soon, by the way, or already have an extremely big presence. Um, and a lot of that is just because of the quality. You know, it's, it's it, otherwise it's a benchmark. Not, you know, yeah, it's really, yeah, exactly. To your point, Netflix, don't quote me on this, but I, I think it's for two reasons. I think it's for a standard operating procedure. And I think it's also for, like you're saying, quality. Their shows, they almost have a, I don't want to say almost because I'm fairly certain they have a mandate as to what cameras can be used, what angles can be shot, and how each show is to be shot to ensure quality. And if you don't, they're not going to pick your show up, which is kind of a testament to if you're not if you're not with the times, you're going to get left behind. Or at least if you don't fall into the standard of what they deem as high quality, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So by the way, so so that that's great to know. Yeah. There's a lot of networks that will have uh, mandates and 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 again, they change based on the FCC and the governing agencies that demand and dictate how video is transmitted in the states, internationally, digitally, cellularly. It's, there's a lot of different rules, especially Netflix, which is. Uh, you know, I'm uh, present on every device possible <laughs> yeah. from, my, from my watch to everything has Netflix. But my, my Oculus has Netflix built mm-hmm. into it. So mm-hmm. um, <laughs> I like that. I actually, I actually like that. I, I like the Netflix room in Oculus. It's like a weird experience. I like my own <laughs> private little seating room. Yeah, you're in your own movie theater. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Let's talk about – this is something I'm fascinated by. So your time at MTV, talking 98 to uh, 2007, you said that no one hears no – more than the casting director. And this was eye-opening to me because I never consider that. I always thought about the talent or the actor that's getting the rejection and they're like telling their friends, oh man, can you expand on this and how the rejection feedback is baked into the casting system a little bit? Oh yeah. Yeah, you know, well, because it's so performative, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 so much of the of the audition experience is usually one on one or one on four. You know, it's a pretty intimate you know room where that conversation is happening. Yeah. Uh, the, the, this concept that the, no one in the industry hears the answer no more than the casting director. It's really a call out to me being in the center, in mm-hmm. the middle. I hear no twofold. I hear no when I'm talking to producers and I'm pitching talent and I'm trying to move them that side. Yeah, yeah. And and there's a version of no. I have to be honest. There's a version of no that I give in real life. I'm I, uh, when I was an active casting director. I I was how do I say aware of my opinion mm. um, and aware of my power. Mm. And here's the difference. My opinion matters in the room. It's my opinion and it's finite. My power. Yeah. I know is out of my control as a casting director. All I can do is submit you to my producers and try to frame you in a certain way. And some of that framing is done in our interview and it's just like what you give me. Some of that framing is who I put on the tape before you and who I put on the tape after you and and how in that experience that I let the producer go on when they're trying to make a decision. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I have to give them something they can say. So I don't know if I should say, well, I can say this now. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not my strategy. <laughs> yeah. So here's my strategy, casting directors, if you're out there. Here's what I would do if I were you. Give them something they can say no to first. Confidence comes from no. If you can get a producer to give you no is, by the way, no is the easiest answer in the industry to get. Yeah. 
No is right. So, and it's also one of the most difficult, but no is way easier than a yes. If you can get the no, you're that much closer to the yes. If they feel like they've, they've gone through the system, due diligence was done, and they've made an opinion that created boundaries so they can focus on other talent, then you're more likely to get them to say yes. Mm. So normally speaking, I don't know if I should say this or not, but normally speaking, the first person in my reel, it could be 50-50, but it's usually the person that I'm not gung-ho on. It's usually the person I think they might dig. But I'm going to show them in the second submission what they were missing. I'm going to show them in the second submission what they didn't get. And those are the things you can't ask for. Because those are the things that come up in the room that are genius and magical. And I can point out to everyone I've ever worked with pretty much what like magical moment happened in their casting tape that we put in there that I kind of I, – I put in with the intentionality of knowing – that the guys in the room were gonna to react to this joke, the women in the room mm-hmm. were gonna to react to this joke, the executives in this room weren't gonna get the joke, and we're gonna <laughs> yeah. ask the kids what it meant, and we're gonna love the fact that we had someone coming in and we're able to teach up instead of learn down. And I think that that's like a fun, like MTV love that, MTV love lateral learning, mm-hmm. peer-to-peer learning, that was, I learned, that's, that's because MTV taught me how important it was to get people in the room. And I, I was lucky to get to MTV after Yo MTV raps and a big cultural revolution that happened. I'm not saying it was anywhere close to where it should have been. Mm-hmm. But after a big conversation happened, I was lucky to get there. And the women, the people that I learned from were just, uh, I'm so eternally grateful for that. But yeah, it was, it's, those, it's those skills. It's those raw, real skills. And they keep it relevant. And, and those raw, real skills... When, unfortunately, there are waves at networks of firings, and we just heard about Twitter recently. And yeah, yeah. This is, happens in media. This is unfortunate, but this is the cycle, especially for publicly owned companies. Mm-hmm. So, And then tw- Twitter leaving that category, but still this is the result of being a publicly owned company. Some of that inflation and um, – manpower and uh, and a real need for bottom line and yeah. and uh we can operate differently in this individual market in this independent market of creativity and i like that i like that that creatives can have a podcast business owners can have a podcast and it's still intellectual property that we have rights to we have yeah. something actually most celebrities don't which is ip most celebrities are f- work for hire trade for hire you know you've heard horrible stories Abbott and Costello had this amazing documentary where you realize that they were just paid actors. They were never once given a percentage of profits from any of their top grossing films. They were just paid to play. So when they were no longer the du jour comedy group, they quickly lost all that financial, you know, it's actually a really heartbreaking thing. But that's the, that is the old creator economy. I think the benefit of now Thanks to people like Taylor Swift and creators who made, especially women, who made changes for equality, who asked for uh, 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 pay visibility to be able to have more transparency and, and, and understand what, what we and our colleagues and people are getting to be fair and equal. So uh, the, the creator contracts that are out now are, are far more favorable because we have more leverage. Because mm-hmm. we don't have to go through networks. We don't have to go through radio anymore. We don't have to go through those ways to um, be able to create and get our content out. And 
If you focus on pitching yourself as a source and not the story, you can also take clips from your podcast, create a relationship, get a relationship, build a relationship with someone at an FM, AM platform where they know what you're creating and about to create, and then be a source for them and start to get your content out that way as well. Hi friends, this is Nicholas Natale, and every Friday at 6 a.m. I bring you a delicious and tasty episode to help you quench your thirst for living a more fulfilling life and leveling up your business. If you're tuning in right now, consider this your sign from something other than yourself to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Leave a review, screenshot it, share it to your Instagram, tagging me at Nicholas Natale so I can reshare it. Send this episode to two of your friends that you think would enjoy this episode. All right, back to it. I think RevShare and joint venture partnerships are not that they're not haven't always been a thing, but I think it's going to become an even more common thing moving forward in the podcast space, even in the creator space, because the coined term of collaboration has been around for so long, but it really hasn't been used with like joint ventures in mind, which I think is going to be the big game changer for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. If you look at what's been happening in fashion over the last, maybe say seven years, H&M, uh, I, I, Gap, I can come up with a list, Adidas, I can come up with a list of consumer brands that have perfected Target, by the way, Kmart, I can come up Walmart, I can come up with a list of brands that have perfected the collaboration on a retail mm-hmm. co- um, component where, where I know, um, you know, obviously, like, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm trying not to say Kanye, but <laughs> <laughs> but there's that, too, where you see the power. That's, you know, that's the power in us. That's the power in people. That's, mm-hmm. that's you know, like, I'm not saying for better. Well, I'm not saying for better. I'm certainly saying for worse. But, like, that's the power that people have that brands don't have. And that's why brands need to work with us yeah. as people. People brands, of course. <laughs> yield people brands. Yeah, yield people brands. I'm curious about the big conversation that was had, but I also want to ask this first. And there's going to be, I'm going to give some anecdotes and snippets of things I've heard along the way. You casted Beyonce in her first film, pretty sure. Mandy Moore getting started around the age of 15, and you helped her become a fashion judge at 16, which is a very, very fun. <laughs> Ashton Kutcher was launching his production company to get punked off the ground, and it was almost shut down for legality issues right out of the gate and you were part of the iconic series pimp my ride coming to life which i think is also super fun <laughs> but the point i, I want to hone in on is throughout your career and i believe this is still true to this day is you're able to get yourself in the right room with the right people how are you able to be in the right room with the right people <laughs> uh i think the easy answer to that is um I was aligned with MTV. I mean, for ten years, when you're when you're focused and consistent, and um, I also at that network helped build the structure of our department. I helped build the SOP for that department and how we could mm. interact not just with not just interchannel, but with other affiliate you know places as well. I think that um, you know, I had an opportunity to create a unique experience. Um, I had an awesome boss. I, you know, that's the answer is Rod that's Asa. Cool. I had an awesome boss. I had an awesome boss who I'll never, I thought we were doing great. I thought everything was awesome. And then all of a sudden he's like, we should be doing these talent reports. Oh. 
And I'm like, but I, we're already doing great. Why are we going to do more? And then yeah. I start doing talent reports. And I see that these talent reports are landing on executive desks and production company desks. And, and now production companies are pitching us talent that they know we're interested in because we put mm. these reports together. Mm. And then he says, well, the reports are great, but let's do a showcase. And I go, a showcase? An MTV talent showcase? I don't understand. Like, yeah. So that our executives can see the talent that we're working with and maybe make an informed opinion about if they want to use them as hosts or not. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm so happy to say I just got invited to Disney's uh, TV night. NBC still does one. And, and a lot of networks picked up on this. This is where diversity, equity, and inclusion came into play. Yeah. This is where the conversation of being mindful of who's in the room, who's not in the room, who needs to be in the room, and has everyone in the room been listened to, heard, and evaluated evenly fairly yeah this is where that conversation comes into play so it's fascinating that's super fascinating that's awesome <laughs> this is a short answer do you have any uh i gotta know any fun f- fun stories uh, like i saw blink 182 rode around naked on a bike mariah carey oh, was buying up ice cream bars one day in the office like what's a memory you look back on that you're fond <laughs> of and kind of halfway like I can't believe that really happened, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, all right. Uh, I can't believe that really happened. So uh, Foo Fighters had an MTV2 special. Uh, I think it was like 24 hours of, of Foo Fighters. Uh, wow. that's a lot of Foo Fighters. Yeah. Oh, no, 48 hours. 48 <laughs> hours of Foo is what it was called on MTV2. 48 oh, hours of Foo, of course. Yeah. And um, <laughs> my job was just to help with sometimes help with energy always help with the artists who are not used to hosting just to get them comfortable and to work with the producer to get their words on on cue cards or however however it is mm-hmm. you know that we're sharing so i think it was day i know it was day 2 we were up you know MTV had this like has this area where they overlook Times Square and we're up on this area of Times Square and I'm there with, there with Taylor with Taylor Hawkins got rest his soul and the the bit that he wanted to do that they wanted to do was a hot dog eating contest. Oh man! And we're delirious. We're like delirious at this point. So you just know it's going to be some sort of like weird, <laughs> you know, jackass kind of. You know, you just know it's going to end up being that way. And they were delirious. And long story short, he ended up landing on the word weenie a whole lot during that segment, and just kept talking yep. about the weenie contest and why isn't there a real weenie eating contest? And this should be a real weenie eating show and. And it was funny, and we were all ha, 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 and then it ended. And that was a, a fun day, and I remember laughing and sharing that story. A week later, they come back to the studio, and he's like, are we going to do the weenie show? And, oh, like, a no. couple of months later, they come back <laughs> to the studio, and he's like, it's the weenie guy. And I'm like, wait, what? This is how, like, this What's is how happening? you're going to know me. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is how you know. And I, I realized, like, oh, oh, who else in the world is going to get to have this type of story, have this weird creative strange relationship between two creatives that were in the room together at a certain time, something stuck. And, and for whatever reason, well, for a lot of reasons yeah, yeah. when, when this, and, and I just, that those opportunities to be, to experience those moments, you know, my first moment, by the way, on MTV, my first big celebrity moment was with Whitney Houston. When I thought I was going to ask her what it was like recording with Mariah Carey on the Prince of Egypt soundtrack. That was like what I was supposed to ask her. And when the production manager, stage manager, points me out in the crowd, she goes, this is the guy, he's gonna ask you the question. He's gonna ask you what it was like recording. And she goes, I'm not answering that question. And I was like, what? (laughs) 
This is like my whole life I'm supposed to be. <laughs> this is my story. This is my question. <laughs> like, what do you mean? Yeah, this is my... By the way, I turned to... I turned, she came, So the, it was very, very sweet, uh, the, the, the stage manager. And she came to me. She goes, well, thank you so much. We're not going to ask the question, you know, but thank you so much. And I said, well, if there's anything I can do to help out, you know, next time. This was fun. I got to yeah. just be around it. And she was like, well, tomorrow we're shooting a very Busta Christmas special. So if you have... Some friends oh. from college that want to come to a very Busta Christmas special taping. Yeah. And I'm like, of course I have <laughs> friends that want to come to a very Busta Christmas special. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I'm Vinny from Staten Island. Like, this is like I'm built in to do. And, yeah. and I went back to school and I, I called on my friends. Even though I had this list of people that I hadn't quite worked with, I called on people that I knew could perform. I called on people that I, I knew how they would perform, that I knew I could um, trust them to be... Consistent and valuable, and show up and be awesome. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and that's literally how I started casting was getting groups of people into first audiences, and then and then Whitney was casting. It's not right, but it's okay. And I got to be a casting assistant on that video, and you know, and and using my little spreadsheets and my my little Excel you know grids whenever I can to maximize communication. Man, I think we need to bring a very busted Christmas back. I think that's what's been missing uh, in <laughs> all of my Christmas I need to go find it on YouTube since. if that's out there. Oh, it was brilliant. He said, you know, you could just, you don't need, I don't even need to tell you what it looks like. Because you can imagine in the red, you know, he's got a big red throne and he's in his full Busta Santa Claus outfit. I gotta go, I gotta go find this. This is brilliant. <laughs> yeah, please. Once we have it, we'll put it in the show notes just so we can relive the nostalgia. That's hilarious. <laughs> I'm going to switch gears here a little bit. You have an awesome podcast, and I wouldn't say it's an awesome podcast if I didn't mean it. And it's called I Have a Podcast. And what I want to say about it is I really like the format of your podcast because it's it's interview-based, but the way you execute on it and with the, the inserts and the snippets of like topic changes, it's like outstanding. It's more of like an experience than a straight interview. And where I'm going to segue this is, is during your time at MTV, you did something called a Walter meeting, which stands for we all like to earn ratings. How has those meetings influenced how you run your podcast? Um, I don't focus on, well, first two things. One is I don't focus on ratings because I hate those meetings. They're triggering. But the earn part sticks with me. That, that Walter could have been so many letters and so many acronyms, and there could have been so <laughs> many different ways to frame how important it was for our ratings to increase. But I love the fact that the executives at MTV use the word earned. And, mm. and it predates earned media and paid media and earned reach and paid reach. And it sort of helped me with the framework as social media came into play to distinguish the difference in the power between earned reach and paid reach. Um, uh, that being said, when I look at my numbers, I look at my numbers sort of two ways. Uh, I look at it like a, a 30 to 60 day download on, on a single episode. Um, it matters to me, not because I'm leveraging my podcast for ads. I'm not. I'm looking, I'm literally looking for singular growth. I'm looking for how much impact I'm having at the top of my mm. um, podcast because I know that that's how traditional podcast um, economy sort of works. But I also know yeah. that what I'm doing with Google on the back end 
of podcasting is going to help with the what we what we call the dog tail. You know, most people like mm-hmm. the puppy, but the dog tail is what is usually where a little bit longer and is usually where some older discoverability can happen. And I feel like mm-hmm. in the dog tail of my content, you know, after 60 days is where I might be able to turn my podcast into something. Um, you know, the idea that they need to be timely is more predicated on an ad network and ad needs and an ad model of podcast. Um, I don't even like giving my, uh, I get a little clumsy towards the end of podcast when they ask, how do people find me? Cause I'm like, I don't know. What if they're listening mm. to this in like 2030? I'm so, I certainly don't hope I'm in the same <laughs> yeah. place. Yeah. I may be, I'll yeah. probably still be on LinkedIn, but I don't know about every place else. If uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Who knows what's, go- yeah. what's going on there. And I, I really do. I it's think true. of podcasting, I think of it with that level of time that mm. I hope that the conversations we're having, I mean, look, they're blasting up audio into space and the NASA, you know, like what they're, they're going to start <laughs> shooting podcast episodes up soon. Like we're, we're talkers, we're story shellers, we're story shellers, storytellers and story sharers. We like to be involved in each other's stories. I think podcasting is, um, it's being treated as a timely linear medium, but there's very, very seldom do I see linear success in podcasting. Very seldom do I see publish 5 million, 10, you know what I mean? Instant success, repetitive, mm-hmm. repetitive. Mm-hmm. It's, it's what we're doing with the podcast. I think that that stand out. That's why I like helping people win awards or get credits. And some of the things I like to, talking about in terms of discoverability up top for podcasts so that those are things that, you know, you don't get, it's not a, a winning an Emmy or a Grammy. It's not a, a, a once in a lifetime opportunity. It's a once in a year opportunity. Mm. Those ceremonies are once a year. So like, Acknowledging that that cycle exists helps me <laughs> have a yeah, deeper yeah. strategy and, st- and stay more committed to my strategy as well. The big point you're hitting on too is I still feel fairly early in the podcasting world. Like I think the podcasting space is still just on the cusp. Like there are some some veterans in the game that have been doing it for 10, 12 years. But the fact it's still growing, the fact that there's there's maybe 4 million podcasts, but only 220,000 of them are considered active. That's a, a super small number when you compare it to like YouTube channels. You know, if you're trying to yeah. stand out, would you rather stand out amongst a billion YouTube channels or 220,000 podcasts? You're probably going to have a better chance of sharing the space over here. So I think this is like still very you know, the beginning stages and a huge growth can still come from this. I completely agree with you. I've committed my career to it and uh, I see it happening. It's, 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 uh, it's identical to unscripted programming. Uh, There's will be, and there will continue to be an influx of platforms and talent. Um, What's going to be really exciting um, is, is as a community, how we change with that. Uh, as a community, how do we all, when when are more scripted podcasts coming out? When do we start scripting more podcasts? What do mm. or does the future of scripted podcasts for us narrators look like? Um, there's a lot of intentionality and conscious creativity that comes from from creating podcast episodes. And, and a lot of that structure comes from the format of the episode. Now, Again, because it's a little bit more inquisitive and it's definitely a lot more one-on-one and this exchange of info. Um, maybe even next year we might even see the rise of the solo episodes. Yeah. Maybe if I wanted yeah. to make some like, random predictions, <laughs> I can see. How do you stand out in a sea of everyone interviewing everybody? Yeah. For yeah. me, by the way, for me, the answer for me was 
well, I don't want people to think I'm a talent booker and I don't want them to harp on the fact that I have access to talent. I do want them to know I have access to talent and I do mm. want to talk to the talent that I've worked with to make an impact. So what I did with my podcast was come up with about 15 people that I will always use as my guests on my podcast and I'm mm. never going to change those same mm. 15 people. And I'm just going to go deeper and deeper and deeper into the conversation. That's awesome. And I sit, I, I record my podcast six days a year. I have one six to eight hour day where I sit down with two people and I record four 10 to 15 minute um, episodes. So that for the month of November, for example, I have three Mandy Moore episodes coming out and I can have, I can get myopic about the topic and not have to get so like, here I am with Mandy Moore this week yeah. and, and <laughs> yeah. hope, yeah. hope that everything in press aligns that mm -hmm. people see that. This way it gives me three, three weeks, four weeks to let the world know that this is my time I've dedicated to our conversation. Here are the three topics we're talking about. This week, this is where we're talking. Input dictates the output. It's okay to watch TV if you make TV. You got to speak their language. You got to know, yeah. you know, you, you don't want to spend a lot of time educating. You want to spend a lot of time entertaining, usually if you're in television. So you need to educate yourself so you know what people are talking about and how they're talking about it so you can get to the point. Man, that is, I've been stewing on this. I feel like this is somewhat serendipitous about you bringing this up. Hmm. I feel like there is a necessity to bring something unique to the table when it comes to podcasting. And I love the way you crafted 15 guests. We're going deeper every time. This is the strategy and this is how it's going to be done. And then you're going to go on other podcasts, talk about it, chop it up, and then go deeper when you're back on your own podcast. It's, yeah, I, I love that. That's going to inspire me to continue to, you know, think of more creative things. Yeah. And it allows me to be more present with a thought. So I don't feel so frantic with inspire this, impact this, ignite this. I can be linear and I'm not trying to make anything. I'm not trying to SEOify or change or, or I don't have to adapt anything at the end because I'm using yeah. it all in, in, you know, from the get-go. It's all part of the alchemy of, of the project all, all the way through. Yeah. And I spend six days shooting my podcast and I spend about 150 with other people doing theirs. Yeah. To be honest, because it's more fun for me to be in someone else's creative space where I've given up all the power that I have as a creator, yeah. you know, like editing and da, 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 da. I got to do all this hard work before I showed up to mm -hmm. make sure that I could be the honest, truest, most like authentic version of myself and still stay on point because sometimes I can just get chatty and I love connecting with people. <laughs> I need to make sure I'm not just taking up your time because I've done that already on television. I got, mm -hmm. if you're hearing my voice, get ready to go do something. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to, you're going to apply for awards. You're going to put your name on, on creator lists that are going to help you get paid as a podcaster. Um, actually, I just came up with this list of 60 podcast platforms, directories. I think everyone should be on in 2023. Wow. So I'll send it to you after this. I'm Please. curious to see yeah. how many you're on and what you think of. Some of them are actually based on uh, international growth mm. of podcasting, especially with our brothers and sisters and, and family members in India and other other speaking other countries that uh, that favor and allow English speaking podcasts to flourish. Man, please send that over to me. I'm super curious about yeah. it. Yeah, I geek out over that stuff. <laughs> in the realm of winning awards, after 25 years, you found yourself talking with Jamie Lynn Sigler and you're realizing you hadn't won an Emmy because you never applied. At that point yeah. in your career, how important was being selective about who you won it with 
And also, what's the actual process to applying and winning an Emmy? I want to know behind the curtains as well. Oh yeah. Well, first off, there's money involved. So thank you for mm. your thank you for your consideration. It means thank you for the consideration of my money. Thank you for the donation. For, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And 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 the so the academy. So it actually works interesting. Uh, you don't need to be a member of the academy to be nominated, but you you become a member when you when you are up for nomination and from that point on. So if you win a nomination, there are even, uh, like, the Emmy Award is not mine. Mm. It's owned by the Emmys. And if when I die, I'm supposed to give it back to the board and it goes and there's a whole list of things they give you. I'm I'm now in the Academy. And what that means is I'm part now responsible for voting in the next wave Mm. of creators who are going to be winning. So there's actually like a responsibility to it. Um, All right, here's how it works. Uh, I have a local (laughs) Emmy. Um, My Emmy was won in the uh, Southeast Southeast Territory of Florida um, because our documentary aired on a, a Florida network first. And I specifically went out for a local Emmy because um, I knew it would be easier, to be honest, than a national Emmy. Yeah. I'd worked in TV for 25 years. The only time I'd ever maybe even qualified for an Emmy, no, I don't even know, because the, the Osbournes won an Emmy in its first year. Um, but I wasn't a producer on the Osbournes. I was like a, I was a, they didn't even know what to call us back then. Talent, mm. coordinator, Co- yeah. wrangler, assistant, some, something Ringo like that. Wrangler was good. I like Wrangler. That's <laughs> kind of what they would put us in, or whatever. Um, when I look at my my title, I'm in like you, I, anyway. So it's always always fun to see those. It's always fun to see the MTV titles. I remember watching titles and thinking that would be cool to get there. I can't imagine one day being there. And I never thought that I would know people that got me in. I didn't. Mm. By the way, long story short, I ended up getting in and meeting people all along the way, and so rewarding. Um, I don't know how we ended up talking about credits. What were we just talking about? <laughs> <laughs> just the just the process of getting an Emmy, who you won it with, those things like oh, that. Process, oh, that, that's why, because I'm uncomfortable talking about uh, winning an award. That's why I'm deflecting. So ah. um, I couldn't be prouder. I I intentionally, you know, when you win, when you win something as big as an Emmy, where there's going to be press and it's going to be permanency, and there's and this was my first. You know that you're. T- I know that I'm tied to these productions for life, and I want to mm. be tied to these productions yeah. for life. That's why I do them. So I'm glad that I won on this one um, because there have been some other projects that I'd worked on maybe where I wish you know that I didn't have to work on it. But when you're an employee yeah. at a network, you do what you're sort of told to do. Um, but this was amazing. Kevin Harrington, the, the, one of the original sharks, the guy who kind of created infomercials on television. Mm-hmm. Um, Brandon T. Adams and his wife, Samantha Rosine. And uh, Je- Jeff Hoffman, the, the, the uh, CEO of Priceline. These are amazing people that are big philanthropists and making big change. And, and to tell a story, the, the, the documentary was called Red Flags. And it, where like most TV shows talk about addiction and there's like an intervention and then they go to rehab and then the episode ends. This started after rehab and follow it 60 to 90 days after rehab. And we're looking at the red flags that she goes through and the red flags that we as enablers and providers and mm. supporters, you know, could be looking at to make sure that the people we love are set up for success. And so are we. Yeah. And that's something that I had some personal experience with. So, um, I like it's a hard topic to talk about uh, sobriety and drugs. It's an important one. When I was at MTV, 
I did a, a show uh, with Mario um, and his mom, God rest her soul, uh, and her struggle with addiction. And we, we had this real honest conversation one day where, where we were, he was getting ready to go on tour and, and he was talking about like needing to create a job for his mom on tour so that she has something to do. But also he knew that if, if she wasn't with him, that, you know, she, she, if left to her own demons, it wouldn't be good. And that pressure that uh, went through and we made a documentary about it and, and it was an inspiring documentary. And at a time where most people weren't talking about that stuff, that, that's what I liked about working on MTV the most is they, they gave us time for stories. Mm. They gave Jessica Simpson 30 minutes to tell her story. Yeah. They gave the Osbournes 30 minutes a week to tell their stories. And like when, when you have a platform that has eyeballs on it, like the youth culture that actually does, they do stuff. They, yeah. they're, they're, moving and making um that i was exciting and but in 2007 i realized that it wasn't just like that maybe mtv wasn't where what it used to be but television was what what you know Mm. we were hearing more about youtube and aol and other platforms that were starting to get my attention and um i like podcasts and mtv wasn't interested in podcasts so i kind of like went in a different direction Mm. mtv still have a a platform now to tell those stories and have those important conversations, which is super valuable. I'm curious on your, your opinion about this. I think oftentimes I think people crave fame and I think sometimes they're going to be a net, there can be a negative connotation attached to it until, or maybe this isn't always true, but until someone reaches the point where they have it and then they're like, Oh wow, you, you did it. You're famous. What would you say is a healthy pursuit of fame and under what circumstances is it warranted? Oh, uh, I mean, just never pursue fame. That would be my goal. That would be my my recommendation. Don't chase fame. Uh, chase goals and let fame catapult you to those goals. But if you're chasing media goals, if you're chasing this idea of a certain audience on a certain show or a certain platform, um, let me say it this way. Not only will you be disappointed in your uh, results, but you'll be disappointed to see how quickly television platforms are losing an audience, Mm. how quickly digital platforms are losing their audience, uh, how much control, you know, and how much more control you could have with an audience if you had direct access to them. Mm. So um, I think that, I think that when you chase fame, you lose sight of the, you know, I don't know. I I think there was a point in time where ego served on television. And I think that networks now have more public responsibility. They have more responsibility, more legal public responsibility (laughs) to, you know what I mean? (laughs) To, um, to ensure that what's hitting the airwaves, um, is as respectful as is dignified is is something that advertisers will want to be associated with something that parents will allow in their homes because we have options. Mm. It's very easy. To bl- it's very it's as easy now to block a channel on television as it is to block an annoying person or mm-hmm. a negative person on social media. So we should and and networks know that and parents know it. So mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. have options. We have options. You know, we don't have to be in silly shows anymore to get discovered. We don't yeah. need to do that anymore. We have more say in how and where we're being presented because we have control over that now. We used to not have control. We used to not have control because it wouldn't be seen. It wouldn't have been mm. visible if it didn't go through you know, a network. But now that's not the case. That's a great point. Let's role play for a bit, Vinny. Let's say it's opposite day. I want to be... Okay. I, I just I just don't want to be discovered. You know, I want to not set myself up for exposure and shareability. 
I want to do everything wrong into regards of, you know, people being able to find my personal brand or my, or my business. What would I have to do to just do that? Just be terrible at, at those things. Oh, um, you should spend a lot of money um, sh- photoshopping an avocado and trying to figure out <laughs> how to, um, you should probably buy your audience and then spend a lot of money on avocado photography and, and stock footage <laughs> that doesn't have you in it because, you know, it's so yeah. funny how um, it's, and I say that because those are, those are things that cringe, by the way, those, are, maybe someone would share something like that five, 10 years ago. I don't think any of us look at an avocado photo anymore. And for some reason, poor avocados, they get the poor bum avocados. rap on Instagram. Yeah. Carrera marble and avocados. They had their they had their time on. They had a heyday. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But I think that I think that it's that it's that overproduced, over, overcreated, um, underintentional content um, mm. that doesn't connect. I also think that if you wanted to confuse your audience, what you should probably do is take the same post, same post and put it on every single platform mm. all at once. Mm. Because the, the mistake that you have there is the social part. You People really forget how much, how much presence they have to have on these networks if they're posting content to be able to engage and yeah. connect. Like if you want to build community and, and have an audience, you have to show up and one-on-one and have a real connection and that's that's i'm you know instagram just turned on as of as of this month instagram just turned on a new feature that allows creators to auto publish now um reels and Uh a couple of other ways and that's scary to think about uh the amount of people who are now just going to automate our feed so be prepared for a tremendous amount of content that goes out to almost a vacuum with no support no energy because those creators won't even be on the platforms when that content hits because that's why they automated. Hopefully, by the way, if you're automating your content and you you like this, my recommendation would be to set an alarm on your phone to make mm-hmm. sure that you know when your content's going live so that you can be there to receive the audience. Because the last thing you want is for something to be misinterpreted and quickly, mm. that can happen quickly. But mm. if you're there in the beginning, quickly it can be resolved. Yeah. And also, also I'm seeing on social media the importance of, of, I will do a call out. I will say, here's what I'd like to see in the captions. And then I go into the captions and do it myself. I actually show by example. Yeah. And I see that helping a lot. Like when I'm on LinkedIn and I say, uh, we're all looking for people. Tell me the type of person you're looking for. I get nothing. If I come in with five lists of types of people that I'm looking for, then I see other people ah, joining the conversation. Yeah, because they found they they see how I'm talking about it, and it doesn't feel as vulnerable as a as a place to share. And I, I think that leading by example is is so important, as important as the follow up. To mm-hmm. be honest, mm-hmm. I know we're we're sort of jumping topics, but most people will send an email and not follow up, or a DM and not follow up. And to be honest, most of us are waiting for the follow up because we're like, if this is important, you'll follow up. Yeah. And the people who don't follow up are the people who say, oh, I don't, I didn't want to bother them. So I shouldn't, mm. I didn't want to follow because I didn't want to bother them. Yeah. Well, if you're not leading with value, then you're probably, you're probably bothering us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Very true. I can't tell you how many LinkedIn messages I get that are just like, hey, buy my stuff. Just met you. And I'm like, I don't yeah. even know you. Are you yeah, you didn't like, even ask <laughs> if I needed this. You're just telling me to buy it. Oh, thanks for the work anniversary. <laughs> Thanks, guy. <laughs> yeah. You don't even know what job I had before that. Yeah, exactly. 
That's funny. Vinny, we are rapidly approaching the last question of the podcast. But before we do, I want to acknowledge you for all that you're doing. I think something that is incredibly admirable about you, and I mentioned it in this podcast already, is just the way that you value relationships and put relationships over, you know, some of the material things and just putting people first is it's incredible because I think that's what it boils down to and how you treat people, how you show up. I can't tell you. I've done research on other guests, but how you show up on podcasts, you bring energy, you bring like intentionality, you care about the value you bring to people. And I think that's a huge testament into the person that you are. You carry yourself with character. So I appreciate that. Appreciate who you are. Oh, thank you. I I appreciate you picking up what I'm putting down. That's for sure. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I, I don't ask to be understood. It's a blessing when I am. And I really thank you for taking the time to say that. So thanks, Nicholas. Absolutely. The final question of the podcast is, what yeah, does it now mean? hit me with it. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, let's get them. Yeah, this is this is ready for the, the sucker punch. <laughs> what does it mean to live a fulfilling life to you? Oh, um, to live a fulfilling life means that um, I left no idea unturned no idea unshared, even more so, even more important, you know, um, I will not die with with even good ideas in my head or heart just because I was the person that wasn't capable of creating them. I think that's where the spirit of collaboration and my, my drive to want to have, have deep connection with people. I don't know where and when the right time will be, but I know that I'm constantly being bombarded with opportunities from both sides, distribution and creation. Mm. And um, I think that the fulfilling, a fulfilling life for me would be that I, I'm not dying. I'm not leaving this world with, with any idea in my head that I've had the ability to share what I think can make this world a better place in a meaningful way and in a collaborative way. And maybe if I get to work with you on it, that's awesome. But if I don't get to work with you on it and 20 years from now, it ends up being, I don't know. And I'm not going to come around. Yeah. I don't come around. I'm one of those weird creatives who's like, like, uh, you know, I'm seeing some saucy posts right now on, on LinkedIn <laughs> about uh, duplication and people. I mean, like, I should be so lucky that I worked at MTV at a point where everybody saw what, how to create, unscripted reality. I don't go around saying, hey, you stole my idea. Yeah. Oh, you, oh, you talked into a camera? How original. You did it in the real <laughs> yeah. world. You stole my... You know what I mean? I don't have that. I, I, don't, I don't even think... I'm not even wired that way. Um, and, and, and to be really honest, I think that even if, even if there was... Even if I thought I could put energy out there and I wasn't attached to those ideas and those ideas still happened, I still get as much excitement about, about it, about about that coming to fruition. So a fulfilling life for me is is an inspired life uh, where I was able to share what I thought could potentially really truly help somebody or or a community of people. And um, a fulfilling life for me would be that. Awesome, I love it. Vinny, where can people connect with you on the internet? How can they come say hello? Oh, I appreciate that. I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter. You know, I'm on the mm-hmm. I'm on the socials now. Um, if they really want to find out where I am, go to the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> look, look, tell, look what Nicholas said to go find me. And while you're on the show notes, drop him a five star review. I mean, there give this go. guy the hard wow. work that he just put into this episode. Right, let this be wow. the episode that pushes you over. And and I know I will be. 
So wow. if I'm leading by example, yeah. you know, feel free to go to uh, the five-star reviews. And by the way, see if I'm lying. Go ahead. I dare you. <laughs> and join me in celebrating Nicholas in this podcast. And I really appreciate the space, bud. Wow, man. Thank you. That means so much. Thanks for being on the show. Check out those links in the show notes. Vinny, till next time. Yes. Bye. That was the episode. You just listened to it. Vinny Potestivo dropping knowledge bombs. Don't forget to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Share this episode with a friend you admire most. It'll take five seconds and it is a great use of your screen time. The real reason you're still here, you want to know the answer to the riddle of the week. How do moths swim? Using the butterfly stroke. (laughs) Flapping them wings in the water. Thank you for tuning in. I'll see you next Friday at 6 a.m. Be kind, be strong, be disciplined, and keep up with those New Year's resolutions. We're only a little over, we're two weeks in. Stay strong. Take six weeks to build a habit. You got this. Bye.